Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. everybody and welcome to today's conversation. It's going to be a great one. I'm excited to have with us Guy Young, who is the founder at Athena Labs. Athena is a new protocol for the synthetic dollar and has a fascinating structure that we'll talk about. And we'll also discuss the overall market dynamics around Ethereum and the conception of that as an asset class called the internet bond. So with that, Guy, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks. My pleasure. Let's start a bit with your background. You spent quite a bit of time at Cerberus. Can you tell us what you did there and what kind of things you learned? Yeah, sure thing. So Cerberus was a bit of a mix between a, a private equity fund and a, and a hedge fund. So they primarily looked at distressed or special situations within financial services and that was investing across the capital structure into to broken banks, insurance companies, some fintech, and then distressed debt situations as well. So that includes stuff like non-performing loans that you'd buy off bank balance sheets or securitization arbitrage as well. So it was really quite a mixed bag. But I think a lot of the angle that Cerberus came into with its investing was was really trying to buy things cheap and distressed. And it looks quite different, I think, to, to what you see within fintech investing in financial services where obviously the focus there is a lot on growth and businesses that are showing strong potential to, to sort of grow into the cycle where service was was typically coming into deals where something had gone wrong and you're able to, to typically buy below big value. So I'm interested in two things there. The first, just the idea of fixed income investing and what kind of metrics you would use to understand the instruments and value them. Maybe we start there. Like you're looking at buying debt in particular, you know, backed by some particular asset or where in the cap table did you play? And then what is it that drove you to make investment decisions? You're actually looking at buyouts of the equity for financial services businesses. But sometimes, as you know, you sometimes take a route through the debt to actually get that in distress situations. So typically it was looking at lending or balance sheet driven businesses where you're typically trying to get into the equity below book value. That could have been some reason to do with a credit issue that that type of provider had had gone through, or it could have been something to do operationally. But typically, some sort of situation had arise where you're trying to get in below the book value of the equity if you're doing a buyout. And then sometimes, as one of the sort of the big themes that you saw coming out of 2008 was just a big deleveraging of bank balance sheets, particularly in Europe. So I think the US had sort of cleaned itself up reasonably quickly after 2008, but that process took. 10 to 15 years in Europe, where you had really interesting dynamics, right, where you had a government that was coming in and saying, you need to get these assets off your balance sheet and and remove sort of the toxic non-performing loans. And then you had a pretty small subset of investors who could actually step in and underwrite those type of deals at size. And so naturally, when you have a market where there's four sellers at size and a limited amount of buyers, it leads to pretty interesting opportunities to, to take those assets off of financial institutions. I'm interested in in the topic of how things break. And having spent a bunch of time 
looking at the patterns of the way things fail and the way financial institutions fail, what are those repeatable kind of cases? What are the usual examples of where you saw companies make mistakes and fall apart? Yeah, I think with financial services, it's a lot of people place emphasis on credit risk, where actually it's it's usually duration mismatches and a mix of that and, and leverage, which usually leads to, to some sort of outcome which would become interesting to a firm like that. So really, I think you can think about those risks distinctly where credit obviously looks like you're lending to someone and they're not going to pay you back. That's something that I think you can get your arms around in terms of the type of business that you're looking at. But it, it's usually where you see financial structures that live outside of banks. So that's usually non-bank funded securitization structures where you have a greater ability to lever up the business. And then you see some level of duration mismatch. So whether that's lending long on mortgages, but your funding source and funding base is obviously less than the length of the mortgage that you've lent out. It's typically that type of liquidity crunch, which I think leads to those situations rather than outright credit risk from, from underwriting. Is that just like a math mistake? How do they end up in a place where they get it wrong? Well, I guess most of financial services right, is in the business of maturity transformation when it comes to lending. And so it really is part of and core to the DNA of what, what type of risk those businesses are taking, which is you're usually taking in some, some form of liability, which has a shorter duration than the assets you're lending to, and you're getting paid to take on that duration risk. And so naturally, when, when you're sort of assuming that risk as part of your business model, you're going to get the assumptions wrong sometimes. And that could be a bank where the deposits can obviously come out on the bond or the securitization structure or lending structure where, where the liabilities aren't sort of fully matched to the assets. I'm kind of just going down this path because in thinking about markets, you want to correct your poor assumptions as much as possible. So is it in the bucket of like unknown unknowns, meaning it was impossible to have done the work to model the world differently, you know, or is it in the category of people are making human error in thinking about cycles incorrectly or in thinking about business risk incorrectly? I really do think it is just core to the DNA of, of us as humans to, to sort of repeat these mistakes because I think where you have the ability to take on risk and then add leverage to that risk, people are naturally going to push that too far until you sort of find the breaking point there. And so I, I think that's part of why you see cycles sort of persist through time, which is those people who have learned their lessons 20 years ago doing the same mistakes typically aren't in sort of the same job and making the decisions when that sort of next credit cycle rolls around. And so... It's something you've obviously seen in traditional markets where you know you learn learn lessons through time, maybe adjust the level of leverage that these businesses can can take on. But then part of what I think what you saw in the crypto cycle in, in the last four years was all of the things that we thought we learned in the real world. Turns out we sort of just repeated the same mistakes here. And I do think it is sort of just core to the to the DNA of humans as risk takers. That's a great transition to the crypto markets, you know, and I think making all the mistakes of financial history in the span of 10 years is maybe not so bad, you know, to shortcut a thousand years of damage. But what is it that pulled you towards crypto markets and what part of the ecosystem is interesting to you? Yeah, I think originally, so I originally had a friend of mine who was a DeFi founder back in 2019. He introduced me to, to Ethereum and some of the applications that were being built on there in 2019. And I was immediately fascinated and, and drawn to it. And I think part of what drove that was spending time looking at financial services in the real world. I've been pretty uninspired, I think, by the technological progress we'd seen, 
not only on sort of existing legacy financial structures, but then even some of the progress that we'd seen in fintech, where it really felt that some of the changes that we'd seen were not zero to one improvements in the underlying infrastructure or the technology. It really felt like small incremental change on structures that were still outdated. And so when I found DeFi and what was happening on Ethereum, it was obviously extremely clunky, it was extremely immature, and sort of looked like a, a casino at the surface level. But I think one layer deeper than that is actually something that's a lot more interesting, which is a fundamentally different technology platform right, that underlies the whole thing and something where you can see the potential for why it could be better than the existing structures. So I'm under sort of no illusion that, that where DeFi stands now and what we sort of saw through the last cycle is not that vision of something that is, is better in every respect. But I think it was, it was actually just the potential that sat there, which, which was interesting to me in the beginning. Can you talk a little bit more about the parts of Ethereum economics that are compelling to you? And how do you view the interplay between protocol tokens that are designed you know, at kind of the layer one mechanism versus DeFi application tokens, which are designed for the functioning or the governance of DeFi protocols? What's attractive to you about the space? Like Ethereum as the core platform, the individual DeFi vending machines. How do you think about that? To start with Ethereum, it's obviously just incredibly interesting that you have an open platform that really is is just a blank surface for people to come on and innovate and that there is some level of translating that innovation and what's built upon it into the underlying economics of Ethereum itself. And so... I think as part of the transition to proof of stake, where you now have an ability to, to be part of that network, securing the network, and then sort of see some of the rewards as part of that, whether it's inflationary level rewards or the, the rewards that you get from execution at the base layer. So really, if, if you believe that this is an interesting platform where new financial applications or other types of applications can build and grow, there is a very clear line of sight into how Ethereum can accrue value within that structure. I think part of the challenge of what you've seen with DeFi applications built upon Ethereum is, is really, I think, an idea that they, they can potentially create an enormous amount of consumer surplus and value for consumers and might lead to the destruction of equity value within the real world. But they do have significant challenges when it comes to actually capturing that value. So I think perhaps one of my more cynical views on crypto as a whole is that it's going to create a ton of value but capture almost none of it. And there's a lot of sort of reasons why that might be the case. And I think part of that is driven by an open source culture within within crypto. It's really not difficult to, to fork a lot of these applications and try and rebuild it. And your ability to actually extract a durable value stream out of what you're producing when everything is open source and can be copied is obviously reasonably challenging uh, through time, unless you have something that's that's truly unique about what you're doing. And so I think that's part of the challenge where... In, in 2019 and 2020, you saw the application level layer of, of Ethereum and DeFi in particular greatly outperform Ethereum from a price perspective. And since then, it's really been down only for those, those applications versus Ethereum. And that's part of the challenge here, which is, I think is a lot of these DeFi applications trying to think about what is it that it, they are sort of uniquely enabling that allows them to, to generate or extract value going forward. I think that's part of the challenge that a lot of these entrepreneurs, including ourselves, are sort of thinking about as we go into the next cycle. It sounds like you have 
more conviction, or at least there's a different risk profile for the Ethereum protocol and the Ethereum token itself. We've talked elsewhere about the concept of the internet bond of Ethereum as an asset class onto itself that brings forward a, a monetary policy or you know a yield in real terms. Can you talk about the actual dynamics of how that happens and maybe lay down some definitions that we can use? As part of Ethereum's transition to, to proof of stake, you now, as a participant within that ne- network, can put up capital to, to secure and validate that network. And so you really get two streams of different types of rewards for doing that. Three, if you dig in a bit deeper, but there's one which is the consensus layer rewards that you get, which is essentially just the inflation of new Ethereum to those validators. And then I think outside of that, it's something that looks a bit more analogous to a payments network that you'd see in the real world. So people transacting and using Ethereum obviously leads to, to fees accruing to Ethereum, which can be distributed to those stakers, which is securing the network. The way I've, I've tried to sort of compare that to something that we see in the real world is a business like Visa, where it's accruing some sort of income for people using the network and paying for it, and then might have a dividend yield at the bottom. That's something that looks vaguely similar, I think, to, to some of the core economics that you're getting through Ethereum. The concept of the internet bond was something that had been sort of spoken about since early 2020, where this does look fundamentally different to different bond structures that you see in the real world, where you have something that sort of sits as a hybrid between equity, where you, in the same way I've just described there, you have a token that's obviously volatile in Ethereum and is accruing some equity-like return from people using the network. But then at the same, on the same token, you sort of have an instrument that looks vaguely like a fixed income instrument with, with a yield that's attached to it. I guess the difference there is that the principle is obviously volatile with staked Ethereum. And part of the, the thinking that we have behind Athena is how can you take that concept of staked Ethereum as an internet bond with volatile principle and transform it into something that is stable in principle and still has some of those cash flows that I described from the yield? Because we think that leads to really interesting characteristics. And I think part of the decision that drove that is that really like we look look at blockchains and think about what is the one real use case that has found product market fit or where there is true demand. And that we think is basically stable coins. People have shown a demonstrable demand to be using stable coins in a bunch of different ways. And I think it's ultimately driven by the fact that everyone wants a dollar, despite the fact that they would, would like to sort of see the decline of the dollar, whether it's in international trading markets or or it's used within crypto. The, the sort of facts and data contrast people's rhetoric when it comes to, to the decline of the, of the dollar. And so what we're trying to do here is basically transform that volatile staked Ethereum concept of an internet bond into something that is stable in principle in dollar values and still has that fixed income stream that we described. So we're talking about a several hundred billion dollar asset that has a real rate of return, which is funded by kind of very low inflation, potentially, if the network is used enough, can become deflation but that also has potential capital gains built into it, which hide whatever you know fixed income characteristics you can really get from from the staking. It's compelling because the rate of return is real; it's not nominal, you know. So it's not as if you're taking the U.S. dollar, putting it into a bank account at five percent, and getting excited for your return while inflation eats away 
5% of your return and therefore you're in the same place. Here, theoretically at least, you should be getting more of the total money supply relative to people who are consuming the currency through usage and so on. But the quantitative characteristics of this asset, they're not like the dollar, it doesn't look that way. So you do have to do some financial engineering. So let's talk about the definitions, the basics around the capital market structure for Ethereum. And in particular, I'm interested in how Ethereum is traded on centralized exchanges, as well as the perpetuals market, because I know that plays a big part in what you do. And even what is the perpetuals market and, and how does it work on these exchanges? As you pointed out, there are, there are spot markets and derivative markets for Ethereum, and the spot markets and derivative markets are not only split across centralized exchanges, but then also within DeFi in, in a bunch of different ways. Really, the the genesis and I guess the origin about what we're doing with Athena actually came about through Arthur Hayes, who who was the inventor of the perpetual swap, which has become the most popular derivative instrument within crypto. So. At a very basic level, it looks pretty similar to a futures contract that you'd see in traditional finance, but there's one difference, which is there is no expiry on that future, but instead of that expiry date causing the value of the contract of the future and the underlying to converge, you have this concept of a funding rate, which which is intended to keep the, the derivative contract and the underlying spot markets in line. And so this funding rate is basically there to try and calibrate between the demand for leverage on the long side and the demand for shorts on the other side. And so where there's excess demand to be getting long, those people who want to get longer pay a funding rate every typically eight hours to someone else who's taking the other side of that contract. And so really that that funding rate can be thought of as, a, as an interest rate that tries to balance out the demand for being long leveraged within, within Ethereum and then other crypto assets as well. It's become an incredibly important instrument within crypto, not only for sort of hedging, but then also just as a, as a linear contract to, to express a directional view on leverage. And it's basically taken over the volumes that you've seen within spot markets at a, at a ratio of 10 to 1. And it's therefore incredibly important and actually more liquid and deep than the spot markets you see on centralized exchanges and within DeFi. And so at a very basic level, what we're trying to do here is, is if you take that perpetual contract and you have a, a long spot position on one side, and then take out a corresponding short position using that contract on the other side, and this is with no leverage, by the way, you've, you've essentially cancelled out the price exposure of the asset that you're using on the spot peg. So if Ethereum goes up 10%, your spot transaction is obviously up 10, is obviously up 10 and then your, your derivative is just lost 10% on the other side. And so in effect, what you've done is become delta neutral. So the price change in Ethereum does not impact your overall position. And that is how you sort of get and arrive at that synthetic dollar position, which is essentially stable relative to the price of Ethereum. Yeah. Right. So let's go back to some of the basics. So the funding rate is kind of like you're in a tug of war between supply and demand. And, you know, if one side is higher, they will have to pay a higher rate in order to affect their position. And what they're kind of pulling back and forth is the market for leverage, the desire to be extra exposed or underexposed to something. It's surprising that this market is is larger than the spot market. Who are the players that are using these instruments? Like, is it liquid hedge funds? Is, is it retail? Who is using these markets at scale? 
Yeah, it is really everyone. So I think if you you look at the way that retail tries to access leverage within traditional equity structures, it's typically through calls on Robinhood, right? And that's that's how they actually get access to leverage where you don't have an analogous asset sitting within traditional markets. And here, I think it really is quite an innovation of crypto that I think is a more natural product for, for retail users to be using to get long or short on leverage. It's easier to understand where you're, you're really selecting a level of leverage and you don't need to understand the mechanics of how an option is priced, implied volatility, all of those other pieces that goes into, into options. And so, yeah, for, for retail users, this is sort of the, the predominant tool for them to just get leverage exposure to the market in the same way you'd see options within within the real world. And then for institutions who are coming to the space, it's a cleaner product to be using because they tend to be dollar denominated. So you can come in with stable coins and margin that 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 contract with just dollars and it avoids you having to go through all of the mess of picking up the spot assets that you'd want to be trading. You know, when you're trying to send those assets around, there's different block times. There's just a general clunkiness to be dealing with spot assets within crypto and sending them around. And here really it is just the ease of use of being able to use stable coins to to margin these positions and get the exposure that you want to the underlying asset without all the friction that comes with buying spot transaction. Got it. It all reminds me of some of the kind of the synthetic products also eToro would have so that people could take a directional position. Okay, so can you give us just some scale in terms of the volumes for these transactions, as well as, you know, one of the things you've said before is that there's a bias within the market for leverage that the funding rate tends to tilt in one direction. You know, can you talk about that and why it could be? Yeah, so I think since inception, perpetuals have traded north of 20, uh, $30 trillion, which is a pretty mind-boggling start. And in terms of volumes, as I said, with reference to spot, it's almost 10 times higher where we stand at the moment on an annualized basis. The the core reason in terms of why I think you see that consistent positive skew for the funding rate is, is driven by two different things. So one is behavioral, where I think people within crypto are generally long biased. It's a FOMO-driven market. And you know everyone who's within the space believes it's going to 100K or whatever next year. But then people who are outside of the space tend to look in with extreme skepticism and are unwilling to, to lend capital on the other side. And so really, you can just think about it as a very classic demand and supply imbalance for, for capital. And that's just reflected through, through the rate being positive there to, to get long. Again, I think you can see this reflected not only within perpetual markets, but then in option markets within crypto as well. So if you look at the skew on, on puts versus calls within the S&P 500, Typically, people are using options to hedge there, the downside. And so you're actually paying more to hedge for the same delta versus getting along with calls. And if you if you look at that within crypto, it's exactly the opposite, where people are actually paying more for the same delta to get along with calls versus hedging the downside with puts. And so there's a bunch of different areas where you can see that long bias nature of crypto popping up. And Perpetuals is just one of those. The other one is a, is a more technical reason where there isn't a great explanation as to, to why it sort of exists. But the way that the, the perpetual funding rate is actually calculated on some of these exchanges, there's this concept of a baseline funding where if the contract is trading within a predefined band, it automatically flips to a, a pretty strong positive number. So in Binance, Bybit, and BigGet, that number is, is plus 10%. And so if this contract is trading within that band, the default number that it's going to be reverting to is plus 10. And so that really leaves 
obviously a very technical explanation for why that number would be positively biased through time. The underlying reason for why it does flip to 10% is, is a good question, and it's one that I've asked exchanges directly myself. I think it's historically to do, and it sort of ties back to that behavioral piece that I mentioned, which is if you're an exchange with a lot of spot inventory that you want to hedge out or get flat to through time, if you know that the market is positively biased and people are willing to pay that percentage to take the other side and you want to hedge out your spot inventory as an exchange, it would be nice to put on that short perpetual position and get paid to do that internally. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a reasonably convoluted way of sort of getting to, to the same answer, which is there is a long natural bias within the market and people are willing to pay that to be long. So holding everything else equal and kind of doing the naive version, one can buy ETH and own it and stake it, thereby getting you know, between zero and 5% in real return. And then you can then hedge out your ETH exposure using the perp market. But because you are essentially shorting ETH, you're going to be paid the funding rate, which can be a couple of hundred basis points as well. And, you know, let's just assume that it continues to lean in that direction. And so is that essentially the, you know, the structure of the product? And then if yes, then what are the dangers? What are the ways that, you know, it can fall apart? That is exactly right. I think one piece I'll just add to that is we're never using any leverage on the shorts. So you're, you're putting down $100 of staked ETH collateral and then matching that exactly with $100 of a short ETH perpetual on the other side. If we just look at sort of the numbers this year for, for what that looks like, and clearly this year hasn't been too crazy in terms of the market demand to get long or leverage long. It's been, as you said, around 5% for, for staked ETH on the spot side of their transaction. And then roughly people have paid 7% on the other side for, for that hedge. And so when you put those two things together, it's a pretty interesting unlevered yield, roughly running at 12% this year. And I think the key piece here is that it's really the only source of crypto yield, which now is outperforming yields that you'd find just from, from treasuries in the US, right? And so when, when you're just thinking about the risk of this whole thing, and it, it might sort of circle back to that, that original discussion we're having in the beginning of how financial services go wrong, you can sort of think about things that look like stable coins or, or the way that this whole business sort of comes together as as pretty similar to banks, where you have deposits on one side where people can can pull out, and then you have assets on the other side, which might have a slightly different duration profile to, to your liabilities. And so here we were pretty insistent on not adding any leverage to that short. And there is some small possibility that basically staked Ethereum might diverge from the price of Ethereum. So they're not perfectly the same assets. I think people are starting to treat them like they are more and more. But we have seen periods in the past where staked Ethereum or the price of the liquid staking tokens for that asset does diverge with with Ethereum on the other side. And what that leads to is a small basis risk on the asset where if everyone wanted to withdraw at exactly the same time and there was a price discrepancy between staked ETH and underlying ETH, that's clearly going to be a delta, which if everyone wants out at the same time, you need to crystallize at that moment in time. I would say that it looks, if you think about bonds sitting within a bank account that back other stable coins, it's not actually too dissimilar from that risk. And so when you've seen rates go up in the way that they have in the last two years, obviously the mark-to-market value of those bonds within the banks have gone down in general, further out the curve. And if every single user of a stable coin said, I want my money back right now, 
you would have to be in a position to to liquidate those bonds and crystallize that loss. So functionally, I think it looks pretty similar. You sort of just swapped out the the assets that sit in there and the structure that sits around the whole thing. But that duration risk on the asset side is is something that's important to point out. What about the relationships with you know the various exchanges? And I know that the company has a bit of investment or strategic relationship with the exchanges that have these perpetuals markets. I guess what are the main exchanges that you work with? And if there was like a large enough liquidation, how do you divide the volume between different venues? Like and would they be able to would they be able to execute? Yeah, so this is a huge risk when when we're sort of thinking about the way that we design the product. So I wasn't comfortable basically taking users' assets after what we saw with FTX and, and just putting them on an exchange. We have seen pretty interesting developments on the custody side since FTX, where you're able to disaggregate custody of the underlying assets from the exchanges themselves. So you can hold the collateral sitting outside of the centralized exchange servers, but then still use that position to, to take out the hedge on the other side. And so what that unlocks is obviously clearly reducing the counterparty risk to those exchanges by an order of magnitude, making sure that those assets sit outside. And obviously that's how traditional market structures work, right, where you don't see the aggregation of all of those roles into a single entity like you have seen in the past with with crypto exchanges. So that's one piece on the collateral side where you have managed to reduce some of the counterparty risk there. To your question about how we're thinking of diversifying the risk, really you want the assets that are sitting within Athena, I think, to reflect market dynamics on average. So roughly 90% of the ETH derivative market is is basically shared by by just five to six venues. And their contribution to that that overall market share, I think, is is something that should be reflected in, in the Athena book, where I think it would be quite irresponsible to have more than 50% of the book on one exchange if they only represented 10% of the market, just in terms of basic risk management around how much you're influencing the liquidity and the funding on individual venues, and then just making sure that that risk is sort of diversified across the market. When we sort of circle back to that point around the custody of the underlying assets, I would just point out that there, that doesn't mean that you've reduced the, the counterparty risk to zero, because you do still hold those hedges on the exchanges, you, you still retain that credit risk on the hedge side. And one of the pieces here is that obviously if one of those exchanges goes down, that short would, would likely be in profit and, and you might not be in, in, in a position to be able to, to close that short and capture the P&L to give back to the users on the other side. So this is something that we're going to be pretty open and public with in the risk documentation that comes out where uh, we've made our best effort to, to reduce that counterparty risk to exchanges, but it's unfortunately something that you can't bring down to zero entirely. The other systemic question I had was around scalability of the strategy. You know, So at which point does this start to negatively affect the Ether price you know, on its own? Like if there is a billion of Athena that's holding that's holding value, like, does that impact the core protocol? Like, if there is 50 billion of it, what happens, right? In the scenario that Ethereum is a $300 billion asset class, this kind of synthetic asset that you're building around it, where you're kind of constantly shorting ETH as the more popular Athena gets, the more you have to hedge out ETH in favor of the dollar. You're buying ETH, but at the same time, you're shorting on the other side. Like, what do you see as the price dynamics there? And at what point does it start to erode the underlying asset? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. So I think if we 
look at the ETH derivative market now, just as a percentage of Ethereum market cap, it's, it's roughly around 2.5%. So not enormous in terms of outright size, but it does have a, a pretty large impact when, when it comes to sort of price movements on the margin. What we saw was during the last cycle, the Ethereum derivative market grew from, from roughly 1 billion to, to a peak of 16, and it sits at around 5 at the moment. So I think the reasonable size where, where the Athena synthetic dollar could exist without completely distorting the market at the moment is is in the low single-digit billions. When it starts to push up, I think, closer to 10, that's when you start to see second-order impacts that you're describing there. The interesting point to consider here, though, is there's a neutralizing effect on both sides of those transactions where if you think about people coming into this synthetic dollar, if you if you want to hold USDC or USDT and then come into, into this dollar, in effect, what's happening, and we're obviously abstracting this away from our users, but what's sort of happening in the background is you're buying staked Ethereum on one side of that transaction. And then we are, as you said, shorting the ETH perp on the other side. And for someone to take the other side of that short that we put on, they would need to sell spot inventory to take the long on the exchange. So really, it's a very sort of roundabout way of someone buying spot on one side and then selling spot on the other, which is typically a market maker. And so the net effect there would would sort of be zero if you're assuming that the inflows are coming from dollars into our synthetic dollar. Where you'd see an outright you know, negative price impact on underlying Ethereum is if people are outright swapping staked Ethereum into our synthetic dollar. That would obviously mean that you've you've obviously removed the the, the price risk of of ETH entirely and haven't replaced it. And so, where I think that starts to have again material impacts on the price of ETH is not in this low single digit billions, but something that's close to to sort of ten. One other piece I just add to this is that there are natural constraints as to how big this can get in a, in a safe and secure way. And part of the vision, and this is the original vision that Arthur had is to eventually expand onto other crypto assets which have deep derivative markets like Bitcoin, where at the moment that, that's sitting around $15 billion of open interest. So it's really a sequencing thing for us where we want to start with Staked Ethereum. We think it's the most interesting asset because of all of the ancillary points we discussed around the internet bond. But you are able to, to expand and generalize the way that we have sort of put in, in place the infrastructure to be able to use different collateral assets to come in as well. It's a very interesting structure. I like the idea about that you can use the markets as they exist to create something that is stable, that is pegged to the dollar, and it doesn't have to be the Ethereum asset. It can be Bitcoin or something else. Kind of just to think through where you get the twelve percent return from, and we kind of we've described it already, but we know there's no there's never free lunch. So in the case of staking, the return comes from people who are not staking. People who are not staking are the ones being taxed or people who are doing transactions on the network and are generating value for themselves from the usage of the network. You know, part of their gas fees could be going towards that return. So there is a redistribution in that tokenomics design from user behavior, essentially. And that redistribution happens in order to generate security in order to be able to have a network that persists with the right data and the right software execution. And then the second part, the funding rate is essentially subsidized by like this also behavioral point of view of the long bias of wanting leverage and more exposure. So I think for the numbers to break down, you would have to believe that the long bias goes away. And then for whatever reason, you have 100% staking on ETH and nobody's 
nobody's doing any transactions. And then of course you layer on some of the, you know, operational risks across the exchanges as well as the the risks of actually participating in staking and so on. So I just wanted to open that up a little bit because I think people will have a question about like where does the return come from? The other question I had for you around this kind of like hedging sandwich, you know, why why don't we have a synthetic dollar using Apple stock? Like couldn't we buy up a bunch of Apple stock and then write some contracts that replicate what a perp does in an institutional context and then have a much larger market cap to play with? Yeah, I mean, there's there's no real underlying reason why that can't happen, right? You can also think about the use of a perp as almost a, a rolling of uh, continuous future contracts. So future contracts obviously exist within equities in the real world. And what you could do is say, I'm long Apple on one side and then short the future at a predetermined date on the other. And if that curve is in contango, then you'd obviously be paid to take that position. I do think it's actually just a process of Getting the idea of a perp into traditional markets takes time. I think there's skepticism. It's something that's not actually legal in some countries. As far as I understand, it's it's not actually legal within the US or the UK. But I think at the very basic level of your question, which is, can you not use other financial assets in the same context? Yes, you can. You basically just need a d- deep derivative market that sits on the other side for you to put on those positions. So my view is that actually uh, the perpetual is really one of the great, I think, of the you know five innovations that crypto has brought is, is definitely within that top five of a useful product and interesting financial innovation. And it is something that I, I wish and hope that we do see brought into more traditional markets as time goes on. Very cool. I can't wait for the Apple dollar. The last question I have for you is you're designing this as, I'll call it broadly, a DeFi project or a Web3 protocol or you know, synthetic dollar, but in the context of broad usage. I mean, it also sounds like a pretty reasonable institutional trade, right? If you had Millennium or any other hedge fund doing 12% in sort of not risk-free, but as low as you can get in a crypto market neutral type strategy, that would be a pretty spectacular fund. So why are you targeting and building this as a broadly available asset rather than as a hedge fund with this particular strategy? Yeah, well, I think it's part of the beauty of creating these products on an open platform, which anyone can access, which is we need to do a good job of explaining the risks that you outlined and making sure that people get comfortable with it and are aware of them before they come in. But they can be fundamentally useful products to different types of people, right? So one thing we haven't even got to, which is really the core genesis behind the idea, which is we wanted to replace having bonds in a bank account sitting behind all the stable coins with crypto collateral sitting within the crypto ecosystem. That obviously presents a fundamentally different and uncorrelated risk profile to having bonds within a US bank. I think what you saw with Paxos getting shut down with BUSD at the beginning of this year, or some of the troubles that you saw with SVB and USDC, really a core value proposition here is that you've created a synthetic dollar, which has a totally different custody and underlying collateral risk profile to the rest of the market. And so I'm not here saying that that's better or worse than existing fiat stablecoins. All I'm saying is that it's different and a lot of people value having that difference and and the lack of correlation. And so there are people, I think, within crypto who will value the fact that you've created a crypto native synthetic dollar that is that is actually untethered to the existing system. And that is something that lives totally outside of this concept of the internet bond where 
really there are two products that are created here, right? You have that stable principle that I described, and then you have that that yield, which is also captured and, and tokenized. And so, yes, I think the, the latter part of what you described there, it might be an interesting product for um, traditional finance to package up and export out of crypto into the, into the real world as sort of a one-click solution for, for a crypto native yield. But then people within the system, I think also would value the fact that it's a crypto native solution that has very different risk profiles to existing fiat stablecoins. Got it. Makes sense. Having options in the market is fantastic. And I think as an experiment and as a new asset to test out the hypothesis, this makes a lot of sense. There's been three things that have worked in Web3. You know, the, the digital asset of Bitcoin, the decentralized computer of Ethereum, and now more clearly than other ever, the stablecoin and its ability to to power payments across all over the world. So I'm excited to see where you guys are and how the project will progress. If our audience wants to learn more about you or about Athena, where should they go? Athena.fi and the Twitter is Athena underscore labs. And then I'm on a slightly crypto Twitter account called uh, leptocratic underscore. Hopefully we can leave in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. Appreciate it, Alex. Thank you. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.